Meanwhile, a massive drug bust shows influx of drugs in the county. The man at the center of a major theft investigation tells us he has no idea where the stolen items came from. And coming up, with severe wildfires, hurricanes, and other natural disasters becoming more commonplace, what can you do to prepare? I think it's safe to say that the world is not the way that we wanted it to be or the way that it is supposed to be. Just look at the news this past week. You see one heartbreaking story after another. We live in a world full of sin. We live in a world full of suffering and pain and tragedy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And there's a lot of people, they, they begin to blame God for their lot in life. As if God had something to do with our rebellion against him and the consequences for the sin that we face every day. There are other people who look at the world that we live in. They say there is no God. There, there's just no way that a good and loving God could exist and allow all of this to happen. There was a lady, and she went to one of those uh, spa things. I don't know what they are. My wife goes to those. My kids go to them. I don't know what they are. I just know we give a lot of money to them. That's all I know about them things. And she was going to get one of these uh, manicures, I guess. She was getting her nails done. And so she's sitting there with this cosmetologist. The woman's name was Jessica, and she's getting her nails all worked on. They're having conversations. That's what girls will do. They can talk about anything all the time. And so they're talking about different subjects, and the subject to God comes up. And the cosmetologist said, well, I don't even believe in God. Well, that kind of took the girl back a little bit. Jessica said, well, why don't you believe in God? And she said, well, look at all the suffering. Look at all the pain in the world. Look at all the tragedies. Look at all the terrible things. How could a good and loving God allow all of that to happen? Well, it didn't sit so well with Jessica, but the woman was on her very last nail, and she thought, well, I don't really want to get in an argument with this gal. And so she thought, well, I'll just let her finish up, and I'll pay, and I'll go on my merry little way. So that's what she did. She paid, and then she went outside, and she was out there in the parking lot area and she saw a woman walk by her with just unkept hair like like bedhead you know what I'm talking about husbands the bedhead it's like when your wife rolls over you're like what happened last night that's what you're thinking right it's like the Chewbacca I think I just slept with Chewbacca that's what happened right there all right that's the way it is at least in the morning for me and then my wife was in the last service so I can say that okay that's the way it goes and so you know what the world and so she got an idea, and she went back into the little area, the salon, I guess that's what it was. She went back into the salon, and she said, hey, I don't believe that cosmetologists exist. And the woman was offended. She said, what do you mean cosmetologists don't exist? I just worked on you. And the, Jessica said, no, 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 no. I don't believe cosmetologists exist because I just walked by a woman with unkept hair. And the cosmetologist was fuming mad. She said, that's not my fault. They don't come to me. And so it is with God. Friends, the problem isn't with God. The problem that we have is with sin. Listen, you can't come up with a solution to the ills of the world today unless you understand what the problem is. There was a college professor, it was a math class, and he put a couple of numbers up on the board. He said, I want you guys to solve this for me. He put the number eight and the number four up on the board. And so one of the students shouted out, 12. 
And the professor said, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Another student said, 32. Professor said, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Another student said, four. And the professor said, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. And then he said this to his students. How can you solve something if you don't know what the problem is? Look at what our world is trying to do today. It's trying to solve something and it doesn't seem to understand what the problem is. So you'll hear people say, politics, that's the solution. Hey, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Someone else will say, education. Hey, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Someone will say, the economy. You say, oh, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Someone will say, health care. You'll say, hey, you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Friends, what is the solution to the problems of this world? It's realizing that the problem is sin. And that's something no one talks about anymore. No one hardly even uses the word anymore. Everything is acceptable. What was wrong is now right. What was right is now wrong. We don't even realize what a sin issue we have. So we walk around in this broken world that we have broken. And we try to come up with this solution and this solution. And everyone's ignoring the problem. And the problem has to do with sin. In the beginning, friends, it wasn't this way. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walked with God in the coolness of the garden. Everything was exactly the way that it was supposed to be. And then God placed a tree in the garden. He said, you can eat from any tree that you want to. Just stay away from this one tree. Well, it was a choice, right? If they take from the tree, they're going to rebel against God. Their relationship with God is going to be broken. If they stay away from the tree, they're saying they want to be in a loving relationship with God. They want to obey the commands of God. Well, we don't know how much time went between Genesis 2 and chapter 3, but we know this. When Genesis chapter 3 opens up, there's Adam and Eve standing next to that tree. And they're looking at that tree, and they're checking out that tree. And it wasn't too difficult for the serpent to convince them to take from it. He says, man, if you take from that tree, I tell you right now, you're going to be just like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. Your eyes will be open. You'll be able to call your own shots. And sure enough, there was a sliver of truth and all of that. Their eyes would be open, but not to the things that they wanted to see. And as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, all hell broke loose on this earth. Now we deal with things like moral evil. Isn't it interesting how God gets the blame for the wrongs that we do to each other? Follow along for just a second. Who created whips and chains? Was that God? Correct. <laughs> who, who came up with the electric chair and other means of execution? Who came up with the atomic bomb and nuclear warheads? Who has the ability to look someone in the eye and lie to their face? Who gossips behind other people's backs? Who looks at someone and makes a vow or makes a promise? 
to only days, weeks, months, or years later break their vow and break their promise. Is that God that does any of that? How is it that governments are so corrupt? Did God corrupt the governments? Did, did you know right now on planet Earth that there, uh, Earth produces enough food for everyone to have 3,000 calories of food every single day? So let's ask ourselves a question. Why is there such a malnutrition? Why is there starvation in so many places around the, around the world? It's because evil governments don't allow the food to get to a certain group of people because they want to eliminate those people from the face of the earth. Listen to me. Most of the evil that we see, just look at the news. Most of the evil that we see is what we've done to each other. It's what we've done to ourselves. So we get to live now with moral evil where every person's trying to think of another way to con somebody else or get something off of somebody else. Not only that, but we also have natural evil. You've been watching the news, right? All the tornadoes that have been sweeping through our nation. Earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis all came to be a part of our world because of sin. Do you remember last week when we talked about the fact that Adam and Eve worked in the garden and they were working in the garden before sin happened? But then after sin happened, what happened? The earth began to bring thorns and began to bring thistles. All creation began to rebel against us. Look at this, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that up to this present time, all of creation groans with pain like the pain of childbirth. Nature is waiting for Jesus to come back and set things right again. It rebels now against us because of our rebellion against God. So we got moral evil, we got natural evil, and let's not forget demonic evil. Satan is alive and well, friends, and he'll do everything in his power to make you play the part of the fool. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we all know his work. Every single one of us has faced his temptations. Every single one of us has listened to his whispers in our ears. And every single one of us has gone the wrong direction when we knew exactly what we were doing. We listened to his lies and we believed his untruths. And we played the part of the fool. And we had the scars and the regrets to back it up. Our world is broken, full of moral, natural, and demonic evil. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything about you. The dad had pulled his daughter aside one day. He said, honey, everything in this world is broken because of sin. Now we have death. We have suffering. We have sickness because of sin. Well, the next week, the little six-year-old girl gets sick, and she's quite upset. And she sits there at the dinner table and she looks over at her dad and she says, you know, I'm a little mad because if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, I wouldn't be sick right now. And then before the dad could respond, the little girl said, but if they hadn't eaten that fruit, we'd all be sitting here naked too. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> kind of needed that laugh, didn't we? Adam and Eve blew it. So what did God do? God came looking for them in the coolness of the garden. Adam, where are you? And they hid, and then they came out, and what they do? They blamed. They blamed each other. They blamed God. And God made a provision for them. He took an animal, an innocent animal. He killed the animal, and he put the covering, the skin of the animal, over the shamefulness and the sinfulness 
of Adam and Eve. It's the first time in the Bible that innocent blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why did God choose blood? Well, he shows the, showed us the most powerful thing, right? Blood, someone has to die. He's shown us the extreme consequences that sin brings to our life. Of course, this isn't the first time or this is the last time that innocent blood will be shed. If you read the Old Testament, there's an Old Testament elaborate system of sacrifices. Every year you bring a lamb. Remember we talked about it last week? You'd lay the lamb down to the high priest. The high priest would take the lamb, kill the lamb, pour the blood of the lamb on the altar. And it would be an aroma that was pleasing to God. And that person's sins would be forgiven for one year. Here was the problem. We kept on sinning. Well, God saw the mess that we were in. So God said, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to save them from themselves. And it appears, according to Revelation chapter 12, that the rescue mission almost didn't happen. Did you know that? The Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who pens Revelation chapter 12, peels back this world into the supernatural world, and he shows us what happened that night when Jesus was born. It wasn't a silent night. When you read this passage of Scripture, you almost begin to think that maybe Christmas never was going to be. Look at what the Bible says, verse 2. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then verse 3 describes this. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour, devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter. You think Satan wanted God to become flesh and dwell among us? No, he did everything in his power to try to stop it. And there was a battle that took place at and Michael and his angels, they won the battle and Jesus was born. Jesus walked our streets and he saw our filth. He saw close and personal what we had done to his creation. And he wept over it. He wept over our condition. He wept over us. He wept over our choices. He wept over our decisions. He faced everything that the world could throw at him. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way, yet he never sinned. For 40 days, he was out in the wilderness, not eating a single thing. And Satan was tempting him with one temptation after another, after another. And Jesus never gave in to a single one. He was abandoned by his friends and by his family. Listen, if you and I were Jesus and we were doing this, we were God in the flesh, wouldn't you just throw in the towel on us? Wouldn't you have just given up on us and said, these people aren't worth the sacrifice? They're not worth it? But Jesus loves us so much that he decided he'd go through hell for us so he wouldn't be in heaven without us. Jesus saw our sin, saw our pain, saw our suffering. So what does he do? He becomes the ultimate lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. With nails in his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns upon his head. For six hours one Friday, he hangs on a cross. And at 12 noon, the sky grows dark. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the sin of mankind was placed upon Jesus. 
Luke chapter 23, verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. This is not some eclipse. It goes on for over three hours. And there are other historians who write about this moment in time. The Egyptian historian Dionysus takes notice of the black sky and writes, Either the God of nature is suffering or the machine of the world is tumbling into ruin. Of course the sky is dark. We are killing the light of the world. Prophets prophesied about this moment in time. Amos writes, on that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The prophet Joel said, the sun and the moon shall be darkened. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Think about this. At the birth of Jesus, there was a star that gave light at midnight. And now at his death, the sun refuses to give light. There's darkness at noon. And then the Bible says that when Jesus breathed his last breath, that the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Luke 23 says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, He breathed his last. Curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. What what is the significance of this curtain? Well, the, the curtain was the divider between God and man. There was a place inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. And only one person could enter into it, and that was the high priest. And he could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. It was called the Day of Atonement. The priest would spend months preparing himself for this moment in time when he would walk in to the very presence of God. He would spend tons of time confessing his sin and confessing the sins of his people to come in as clean as he possibly could. And when he entered into God's presence, he made sacrifices, he made pleas, he repented of not only his sin, but also the sins of the people. And on the day of atonement, everything shut down. No businesses were open. Nobody went to work. They all sat outside amongst the the people there outside the temple waiting to see if God would forgive them, that God would be gracious to them, that God would be merciful to them for one more year. Then the high priest would come out, and there was a goat that was chosen. And symbolically, he would place all the sins of the people on that goat. And then they would lead the goat outside of the city gate and he would wander around in the desert and everyone would stay away from that goat until that goat finally died. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. Jesus is our scapegoat. He who knew no sin became sin. He took our sin and they led him outside the city to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And they crucified the Lamb of God. The temple veil torn in two was God's way of saying, no longer will there be division between God and man. No longer do you need to go to a priest to confess your sins. Jesus 
is our high priest. And we can boldly go into the throne room of God because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that covers over all of our sin. So what do we have here? We have the temple veil. We have darkness. We have the temple veil being torn from top to bottom. But that's not all. Then there was an earthquake that shook the foundations of the world. Matthew 27 verse 51 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Now, an earthquake's not a miracle. What made it a miracle is the exact timing at the moment when Jesus breathed his last breath. And then look at what happens. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, don't you wish there was more information about this one in the Bible? I'm like, who rose from the dead? Who's walking around proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah? How many days did they do it? And once their time was up, did they just go back to their tombs and lie down and say, I'm done and be dead again? Is that what happened? I don't know. It doesn't give me any answers. But wouldn't you love to have seen that? Wouldn't that have convinced you that Jesus was the Messiah? Someone rising again from the dead? Jesus did rise again from the dead. And yet people still don't believe. And what I want you to get is he did all this for you. And he did all this for me. What was the problem? Our sin was the problem. What was the solution? It was the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So you don't have to run away from him. You don't have to hide from him. He hasn't come to slam you. He's come to forgive you. He's come to give you a new lease on life. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. Everybody's free. But only if you'll come out of hiding. Only if you'll come home. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the parable of the prodigal son. You've probably heard about it before. Maybe some of you haven't. It's about a dad. He has two kids. And the dad in the story represents God, and the two boys, they kind of represent us, especially the younger boy. I think we relate more to him than anybody else, especially before we gave our lives to Christ. He's the snot-nosed kid who's arrogant, thinks he knows everything. He goes to his dad one day and says, hey, dad, you're better off dead to me than you are alive. I want my share of the inheritance, and I want it right now. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want to have my money right here, right now. And for reasons I don't fully understand, the dad gives the kid the money. Well, you probably know the story. If you don't, the kid goes off to a foreign land, squanders all of his wealth. Of course, a famine comes. He runs out of money. He's penniless and he's poor. So he goes and gets a job. He's slopping pigs. What Jesus is trying to tell us in this story is the kids hit rock bottom. No self-respecting Jewish kid would ever slop pigs. And then there's this little phrase in the scripture. When Jesus tells the story, he said about the prodigal son, he said he came to his senses. All of a sudden, a light bulb comes on. He says to himself, self, yeah. You know, my dad's hired men are treated better than I'm being treated right now. I know I'm no longer worthy to be called my dad's son. I've betrayed him and disappointed him. 
There's no way he'd ever welcome me back. No way he'd ever forgive me for what I've done. But maybe, just maybe, he'd make me like one of his hired men. So he prepares a little speech, doesn't he? Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. No longer worthy to be called your son. And he sets back home. And what he doesn't know, and what most people don't know, is that the father, the dad, was looking out over the horizon for his son. And he's been looking for him day after day, week after week, month after month. And the day finally comes when he sees the silhouette come over the hillside. And it sure looks like his boy. And as he gets closer and closer, he realizes that it is. So what's he do? He runs with everything he's got to get to his son. And the son doesn't even get his little speech out, does he? The dad just embraces him. He forgives him. He restores his sonship once again. It's a beautiful Beautiful story. It gives hope to so many people that their failures aren't final. Well, there was a, a gentleman. He was so blown away with that story because he related to that story so well that he went to this painter. He said, could you, could you paint for me a beautiful picture of that moment when the dad comes running to embrace his son? And the artist said, I would be honored to do such a thing. And he spent weeks, he spent months working on that picture. And finally it was done. It was time for the great unveiling. And the artist was so pleased with what had come together. And so he reaps his back on the canvas, pulls it back so everyone can see the picture. And the man who paid for the picture is overwhelmed. He starts to weep. He says, you, you captured it. You did it. You captured the emotion of the dad. The dad's arms were out running to his son. The son was arms running out to his dad. He says, you've pictured it. You captured it. That's exactly what I had in my mind. What a beautiful moment. What a beautiful picture. And you just stand there looking at the picture, looking at every detail of the picture. And then he sees something in the picture. He's like, this isn't right. Something's not right here. And he notices that the dad in the picture has on one red shoe and on one blue shoe. So he turns to the painter and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if you got this, but you got a little detail that's, out, that's messed up. And the painter says, what are you talking about? He says, well, the dad's got on one red shoe and he's also got on one blue shoe. And the painter started to laugh. He said, do you honestly think that when the dad saw his son coming over the horizon that he cared whether his shoes matched or not? No, this dad grabbed the two nearest shoes he had. And he ran. He ran for his son. And he didn't care what anybody else said. He didn't care what anybody else thought. His son had returned home. Then the painter said this. Don't you understand? We serve the God of the mismatched shoes. Here's what I know to be true. You take one step towards him. He comes running for you. And he doesn't come to slam you. The Bible says that Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but to save us from ourselves, to give us abundant life on this earth and eternal life in heaven. And yet, what do we do? We hide. What do we do? We play the blame game. What do we do? We try to save ourselves. I was reading this past week about people who are drowning and did you know that when someone's drowning and a rescuer comes out to try to rescue them, that the drowning person has to surrender their will over to the rescuer? That if the drowning person continues to flail their arms and the rescuer gets too close, he could grab the person who's trying to rescue him and both of them will drown? 
At some point in time, the person who's drowning has to surrender to the will of the rescuer so he can be brought back to safety. You understand you're swimming in a cesspool of sin. And you're flailing your arms around all the time thinking somehow, someway, your goodness is good enough to get you to heaven. And you and I both know we aren't that good. At some point in time, you got to surrender. At some point in time, you got to come to your senses and realize that you can't save yourself. And so you surrender your will over to his will. And then he leads you back to the shore. He leads you back to safety. And he gives you the life. That you always wanted to live. So ollie, ollie, oxen free. All are free. If you'll surrender to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father. In this moment in time. I pray for anyone who's trying to rescue themselves. That they will finally come to their senses. And realize there's nothing they can do to pay their sin debt but that they might accept the payment that you made on the cross. Lord, you bled, you died, you rose again, and you want to have a relationship with us. You want to show us a better way to do life. Lord, so many people in our world today have it wrong. They think you're out to get them when all you want to do is help them. So, Lord, I pray for a moment of clarity. I pray that the fog would be lifted, that we realize that what we're missing is you, that we were made by you and for you to have a relationship with you. And I pray today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day we'd finally surrender. Not tomorrow, not next week. Right here, right now. Lord, I know that you've been speaking to people's hearts. I know, Lord, that you've been knocking on their door, wanting to come in. And I know that you're relentless. Here's another opportunity. So I pray today, Lord, for a moment of courage that someone would finally say, I need Jesus in my life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.